welcome to our continuing study on battling depression, anxiety, and fear with the gospel. Glad to be able to resume with you and be with Wes Treadway and for us to study this together. I'm looking forward to it. And for those of you who are maybe counting or doing math, this is week four of our study, but this is the fifth week since we started. So, Andy, it's been two weeks since our last study. What's been going on with you? (laughs) What's been going on with me? So... Uh, What happened was a week ago Sunday, I was having a a heart attack while I was preaching, literally, um, and uh, got good medical care. Uh, 1.30 in the morning, went to the ER with my wife and got uh, a couple of stents put in. And uh, I'm I'm recuperating, but doing very well. I'm amazed at the medical technology of minimally invasive surgery. and I'm thank you for your prayers and for your those of you that are aware of that, but just uh, grateful to be alive and grateful to be able to do this. Yeah, absolutely. We're grateful that you're here as well. So, um, Andy, tonight as we continue our conversation, what are we going to zero in on? We've talked about a lot of things, but we're going to zero on a specific aspect of this topic tonight. Right. Again, I'm using a couple of resources that have been helpful. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on spiritual depression. But tonight we're going to be leaning on Edward Welsh's book, Depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness. And so we're leaning on three of the chapters he wrote in that. Um, So we're looking at uh, chapters that he entitled Suffering, a chapter entitled God, and a chapter entitled Cry Cry Out to the Lord. So we're going to look at those three aspects uh, in the midst of depression, um, depression as suffering, and then where is God in all this? How should we think about God or how we tend to think about God when we're depressed? And then what it means to cry out to the Lord in the midst of these kinds of trials. Well, so let's talk first then about depression as suffering. Mm -hmm. How is this a helpful insight for us? I found it a helpful chapter. Um, Maybe I hadn't put it together. I think that it's not a connection that we usually make uh, when somebody's depressed, they don't necessarily think I'm suffering or I'm going through afflictions or trials. Uh, and so what that means is, you know, sometimes we can be ashamed of depression as though it's kind of a shameful malady that we're to blame for. And as a result, uh, we, you know, we might not marshal some biblical resources that are very powerful Um, a whole realm or range of biblical statements about suffering, about the reasons for afflictions. We just kind of keep them locked up and the doors closed because we think that's not relevant here and then we're left without resources. And so Edward Welsh in his chapter on, on suffering puts the two together and zeroes in on depression as a form of suffering. And I, I found it very helpful. I think it's helpful for us to kind of dig into this a little bit because it's possible that sin is involved and that's leading sure. you to that place. I mean, we've talked a little bit uh, about that, but it's also possible that this is a form of suffering and there's some resources that you can bring to bear. So I look forward to digging into that a little yeah. more. Yeah. How does this enable us then to unleash a lot of things we already know right. from the Bible, but perhaps we never thought to apply specifically to Sure. And I think I think many people are aware in trials, one of the go to texts is is James uh, chapter one, verses two through four, Mm -hmm. which says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete not lacking anything. So if you think that those verses do not relate to depression, you are stripped of a lot of helpful tools in the midst of that circumstance. But if you think you can bring that mentality to bear, you can say, 
wow, in the midst of my sorrow, that's depression is sadness, a deep soul sadness, there's still an overarching joy because we believe that God is at work and that God is using this suffering to bring us in the end to a stronger level of spiritual maturity, that we are mature and complete, not lacking anything. That before we went through the depression, before we went through that form of suffering, we were to some degree immature and complete, lacking things. And uh, that when we went through that now, we have become in an amazing way buttressed and strengthened in our faith and have a stronger sense of God's love for us and a, and a stronger sense of purpose in this world. Those things that we don't tend to have while we're having depression. But if you consider pure joy, you say, you know, I'm going to get through this. Mm. And when I do, when I'm on the other side of this, I'm going to be in a better place. Wow. And yeah. that is pure joy for me. Yeah, looking at the fruit that may come from yeah. this because we believe that God is at work. But look at the opposite. If you don't bring that to bear, you're getting beat up mm. by the bully of depression. But you don't have pure joy because you think it, you're, you're to blame. And, and to some degree, I know our sins do play into it sometimes. But you think you're to blame and, and you just can't, you don't have any weapons for the fight. You don't have any optimism. You think this is, there's nothing good that can come from this. This is in a separate category than, than let's say, uh, a cancer diagnosis mm. or some financial reversals or some other member of the family going through a chronic illness, something like that. Those are the trials we can soldier through and God's with us and all that. But this depression, I'm on my own. Well, that's what Satan's done. He's deceived us into mm -hmm. thinking we're on our own. We can't use James 1, 2 through 4. That's a pretty dark place to be. Are there some other passages that might also be helpful to us in that? Yeah. Um, I think about 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is particularly uh, applicable here in depression. And let me just keep uh, say it simple and then I'll read the verse. Paul says that we receive comfort from God in our afflictions so that we may comfort other people in similar afflictions. Mm. So to, to realize as we go through this, you know, God may actually be grooming me and preparing me for a life of ministry to other people who suffer like this. So that, that gets you, it's very helpful because it gets you um, out from just thinking about yourself all the time, mm -hmm. which is, you know, later in this time, we'll talk about that bending inward that we do in depression. But it causes you to look upward to God. You're going to give me comfort and to look outward to others. When I get that comfort from God, I'm going to comfort other people. So this is what the text says. Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 6 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. So just pause there. Just think of the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort coming to you in the midst of your depression and discouragement midst of your fear and anxiety, he comes in and, and is there. Wow, that's awesome. The mm -hmm. God of compassion, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Just like James says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, he comforts us in this one too. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a purpose. People in depression frequently are stripped of purpose. They don't have any purpose for life. I don't even know I'm alive. My, my existence means nothing to anybody on mm -hmm. earth. That's a lie. There's a reason why. He comforts us so that we ourselves may comfort others with the comfort we have received from God, so that we may comfort others. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Mm -hmm. So that is a a ministry conviction, we think, you know, this thing is happening to me, ultimately, so I can be a blessing to others. Wow. 
Yeah, there's another one also later in that same book, 2 Corinthians 12. And there Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh. And we tend to think of that as, a, as chronic illness, some pain. <clears throat> Probably it was. But let's imagine for a moment that the thorn in the flesh here would be depression. Um, again, there's a sense of purpose. And then Paul says more than that. And this is so powerful. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. So we should look at depression as a form of weakness, a soul weakness. Uh, could be looked on as a thorn in the flesh. And its design, according to this, is to cause us to see our own weakness and bring it to God in prayer. Mm. There is something assumed in what Paul says. He doesn't say it, but the fullness of Paul's theology, he would definitely agree. When I'm weak, then I'm strong if I bring my weakness to God in prayer. If I stay isolated from him and stay weak, then I'm actually not strong and then I'm just weak. But if my weakness awakens me to my need and causes me to cry out to the Lord, as we'll talk about later, then it actually ends up being a strength. That's beautiful. That mm -hmm. idea of endurance in the first passage and then carrying over, really that it's rooted in God's grace toward Paul. That's amazing. In connection with depression, what are some possible causes of this suffering? Okay, so Edward Welsh in his book, Zeroes In on Five, we'll just read them, Other People, uh, we'll talk about that. We ourselves uh, are the cause of our own depression. Our physical bodies can be a cause of depression. Satan certainly can be afflicting or assaulting us with depression. And then God himself. So it's helpful for us to look at each one of these individuals. All right. So let's let's look at them then one at a time. Okay. The first one you mentioned was other people. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, no need to be insulting, but, you know, people can drag us down, <laughs> you know, they, they, uh, they affect us. And so you can imagine um, just the depression, let's say, I think, I think the worst physical situation you could be in on planet earth is to be incarcerated by a torturer, mm. uh, a human being who thinks every day how he can bring pain into your life. Mm. Uh, I, don't, I can't imagine a worse earthly situation. Paul had that many times. Um, that's depressing. You see no way out. You know, you cry out, but you're not delivered. And so that can be, that can be tough. So certainly another person is just bringing the depression to you. But, you know, people who are themselves going through addictions, people are going through mm -hmm. other things. Maybe they're just angry. Uh, they're sinning against you, a spouse, um, a grown child. Uh, their rebellion against God can be very depressing for you. Mm -hmm. So other people can do that, you know, people that make your life miserable at work, people who are persecuting you or, or treating you harshly. Um, sometimes people uh, depress you unintentionally. They don't mean to, but they're just their stuff, their life, you know, the, what, the way they approach life. It's just, this is how it's going to be for us, isn't it? This is who you are, isn't it? I mean, and it's just can be depressing, you know, where it says bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances. Bearing is like, could be amoral. It's just how they're put together. And it's just like, it can weigh you down to other people. Yeah. So along with other people, right. sometimes there's another person that can do that. And it's, it's us. Well, we it's are probably number one. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. You know, and, and let's be honest. I think I've said before, and we, we don't need to develop this fully because we've done it before. But our own sinfulness is probably one of the most depressing things there could ever be. 
I think even in that uh, earthly physical situation where you're, you're being persecuted and beaten, rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, because great is your reward in heaven. But he doesn't say that to people who are habitually sinning. He says, repent, <laughs> you know, and, and yet there you are. And it's just very depressing to see the way sin has its ascendancy in your life and can just beat you up and dominate you. And, and we can believe the lie. It's directly contrary to the Emancipation Proclamation that, that Romans 6 is, that you're not a slave to sin. You never need to sin again. Every temptation that comes to you is a lie. Telling you you have to sin. No, you don't. Not a single one. If you're a child of God, you are set free from sin forever. Well, you, you, but we don't believe that. We think, yeah, this thing's got the better of me. And so we can, you know, sin lies to us and, we, and it's very depressing. Our, our own sinfulness, um, you know, our, our habits, our corruptions, our weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And some of it is mild sin. It could be, you know, we just have a, a habit of procrastination or some other things. It's still sin, but it's not like that. But it still makes our life difficult. Yeah. So we ourselves can be our own worst enemies. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned our physical bodies. And I think this right. one's helpful for us to think about, yeah. uh, that, that our physical person is also connected to this idea of our, our spiritual health, our, our soul. So right. how can our physical bodies play a role in this? Very, very strongly. We are, uh, our souls are in earthenware vessels or, or um, clay pots. You know, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are made from, from the dust of the earth. We are frail. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's pretty obvious. Like you look at one very clear case of depression, and that's Elijah running from Jezebel. The first thing God does is send an angel to feed him and give him some water and some rest. It's like well, we'll talk after this. You just you need you need a meal. You need you need a rest. You know, just have some have some mm -hmm. sleep. Uh, Charles Spurgeon um, said you need to get out and you know and smell the sea air or go out in the forest and smell the the scent of the forest. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Martin Luther said you need to go go out and farm to deal with manure. You know, just the <laughs> richness of fertilizer will get right. you. You know, well, all of that points to actual I think chemicals in the brain, mm -hmm. and those are natural remedies to some of the chemical short. Uh, uh, shortages we may have, vitamin C, sunshine, fresh air, things like that. A, a holiday at the sea can, can be helpful. Uh, medical science has gotten to the point where sometimes some brain imbalances, chemical imbalances can actually exist and some stabilizers can happen. I'm not talking about psychotropic drugs and all that. I'm, I'm talking about equalizing certain things, but I'm not a medical doctor. That's something that, but I, I think Christians would be wrong to reject that out of hand mm. as being being faithless to take that kind of medication. But, you know, our bodies, and let's be on, go beyond that, just chronic pain. It's not, not like there's a chemical imbalance in the, in, the, in the brain. You have a malady that's hurting you every day, cancer, some other thing. Spurgeon, who battled depression, he struggled with many maladies, but his worst, the worst was gout. I didn't know that much about gout. But it's an inflammation of the joints caused by an inability, I guess, to metabolize proteins or certain things like that. But apparently the pain is almost indescribable. Um, Spurgeon was trying to explain it to a friend that didn't have gout. And he was talking about a, a Latin philosopher named Lucian. And he said, uh, who had gout, uh, Lucian says, I thought a cobra had bitten me and filled my veins with poison, but it was worse. It was gout. And uh, it was um, a biography I, I was listening to about, about Spurgeon that talked about one particular day. He was literally writhing on the ground in pain, just like, like, like an animal on the ground. And, and just, it's very affecting. You read it, and he just was reduced to, you know, prayer and just crying out, God, you are my father. I'm your child. If, you, if I had a child like this, 
crying out. I would alleviate the pain if I could, you know, praying like that. So, but that just goes on and on and on and on. And, you know, it can be very depressing. So our bodies can, can do that to us. So. I think oftentimes we, we can discount that. I was having a conversation with someone even just yesterday who was talking about, you know, sometimes I'm just not very nice in the morning. And it's like, well, do you, you go to bed at a decent hour it's like maybe maybe you need some sleep right maybe it's not that you have this major spiritual issue that only happens in the morning maybe it's just there's something about the way god created us to rest and to eat and so it's it is amazing how connected those things can be and how we can miss that when we're so focused on the the symptom and not maybe what's at the root on sleep deprivation you know historically the communists and the cults use it to break you down and win you over and we start, do it to ourselves voluntarily. Yeah, it's like it's we just like, do it. I'm not, ah, you know, whatever. And then Satan's like, starts speaking lies mm-hmm. into you. And then you start believing them. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, speaking <clears> of <throat> Satan, how does Satan play a role in this? Yeah, I, I believe as I'm writing my book on heavenly retrospect, as we get to heaven, we look back. Uh, one of the chapters has been on, on spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, Satan and demons. And we will find out just what a big factor they were every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has, uh, angels have mysteriously accessed an angel, a good angel, holy angel, had access to Joseph's mind and put dreams in his mind to communicate what to do about baby Jesus. Um, well, then demons can do the same thing if permitted. They have access to our minds. They can insinuate thoughts. They can insinuate feelings. Yeah. They can insinuate depression. And uh, so I think depression is a flaming arrow of the evil one. Satan, I think he designs to make us despair. Uh, I think it's, as I've said before, Satan's job one, top priority is to get the people of God not believing the promises and wiped out in despair. So if he can do that, he's rendered you null and void. So those are four. The fifth one that you mentioned was God himself. Yeah. And that's a head scratcher for many of us, like not depression. Why mm-hmm. would God bring depression? And uh, I, again, you would say, well, then why, you know, honestly, why would God bring any pain or affliction you know, in the health and wealth, the prosperity gospel, people say God absolutely never does that. But they have they have removed clear verses of the Bible that say that he does. Hmm. You know, uh, those that are afflicted according to the will of God, that kind of thing. And there's just clear verses that teach that God does bring pain and sorrow into our lives. So 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Hmm. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He does all these things. Again, Isaiah 45, 7 says that. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So Edward Welsh says this, quote, God is over all things, and nothing happens apart from his knowledge and his will. By the time suffering or depression comes to our doorstep, God did it. To believe anything else is to opt for a universe that is random and out of control without a guiding hand, bringing all things to a purposeful and awe-inspiring conclusion. So imagine if this, like like we were saying earlier, uh, other forms of suffering, it's like, yeah, those verses are for that. They're not for depression. Hmm. Imagine God's sovereignty attached to that. Yeah, I'm sovereign. I don't have anything to do with depression. That's not not that. That's not Hmm. me. And there's nothing I can really do. You're on your own. You need to get back to a place of sunshine where you're believing my promises. So you're on your own to do that. It's like, oh, I'm lost then. But if God actually is orchestrating pressures that he knew would bring you to that state of mind, and as we'll say later, he's there with you in it, that's a whole different ballgame. There's purpose in it. He's there with you. He's there with you in the darkness. He will lead you back out. 
He has brought the darkness in some mysterious way, and he will bring the light in some in his own good time. That is very comforting. Uh, but God actually does orchestrate and bring these things about. So with verses like what we just looked at in 1 Samuel and Isaiah, why would some people find such difficulty thinking that God is actively bringing suffering into our lives? Well, as we're going to say in a minute, and part of the depression is questioning the very existence of God. You know, there there comes in depression, <clears throat> excuse me, a form of practical atheism. And you're like, well, why would God bring that about? Well, God's not bringing that about. But God's bringing all the circumstances that, that bring that about. And so I think people tend to think God has nothing to do with it because of its essential nature. It's darkness. It's sadness. And God is a, is a God of light, a God of joy, a God of power. So they just seem like God would never do that. And, and by that trick, Satan is able to get you, yourself, by unbelief, to exclude God from all of this. You're on your own. And so that's why I think people think God could never be bringing this to me. This is something I did to myself, and I, I have to get out of it myself. So how would accurate knowledge of which one of these is actually the reason for our suffering, uh, as we uh, are, allude, how is that helpful for us to understand which one is affecting well, that's the whole thing. Um, you know, Edward Welsh brings these five sources, and the Bible gives lots of reasons why. Not just depression, but generally when it comes to suffering. Uh, there's so many reasons why God brings suffering to the lives of his, of his people. To put the gospel on display, to store up treasure in heaven, to, you know, to humble us, sanctify us, all of these things. He gives us, the more mature you are in, in biblical knowledge, the more aware you are of all of those biblical themes. What you don't know is which of those is directly relevant to your case. Hmm. You don't know that. Um, and, and you will not know that. You're not supposed to know that in this life. Uh, I do believe, I argue in my book on heaven, we will know it in the next world. God will explain exactly why that combination of trials was necessary in that stage of your life, what he was doing, because you'll be able to handle that information then but not now. What you're supposed to do is become as mature as you can be biblically to know, be aware of all of the themes and generally aware of why God brings all types of suffering in your life. So I've already given you one of them. One of the reasons God brings suffering into our lives is so that he may eventually comfort us in ways we could never have been comforted if we hadn't been through that darkness mm -hmm. so that then we are now equipped to be counselors to other people and be able to minister to them, thus bringing us cohesively together to brothers and sisters so that we're not independent and alone and isolated, but we're a body helping each other, sharing each other's burdens. You can see the wisdom of God and all that, but we don't know for sure that's what God's doing in this case, and we know, won't know in this life. So it seems like one aspect of what you're saying is that there's a, a sense of complexity to right. what's happening in our, in our sufferings. Why is it likely that there are complex of reasons why we're suffering. In other words, yeah. some or all of these sure. might be at work all at the same time. Yeah, as I wrote the book on retrospect, uh, suffering in heavenly retrospect, you know, looking back on our sufferings, um, you know, I think it is so difficult for a set of grieving parents who have lost a, a teenager in a car accident or, or an eight-year-old to leukemia or something like that to be told, yeah, but, but eight of their friends came to Christ. I mean, like, was there another way than taking my child kind of thing? It's hard to hear. Um, but I think even that's very simplistic. Just people are complex. People's hearts and minds are complex. Um, God's purposes are complex. There's a whole array of factors. So let's take Joseph and his brothers. All right, that was the central 
trial of Joseph life, Joseph's life, but it was a multifaceted trial. It was trial upon trial. So Joseph's brothers meant a certain level of harm. They wanted him out of the family. They wanted him out of the picture because they were jealous of his close connection with Jacob. So he, that's part of it, but that had nothing to do with Potiphar and his wife. No. Had nothing to do with uh, with the uh, the cupbearer to, to Pharaoh forgetting Joseph for two years. I mean, there's just layer upon layer of trials that happened in mm -hmm. Joseph's life. But then as you look back, when Joseph was an old man, let's say a year or two before he died, it's like, yeah, I can see God's hand in all of it. But even Joseph at that point didn't fully understand because Moses hadn't come along yet. The Exodus hadn't happened yet. The 10 plagues, the Passover, Christ, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. There's no way you can see all that. Yeah. And you're like, all that's coming up? No, no, not every trial's like Joseph and the, and the seven years of famine. But that just shows you there's layer upon layer. And as Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many lives. But even Joseph saying those words didn't understand fully save many lives. Mm. He meant physical deliverance from the famine. God meant eternal salvation by the blood of Jesus. Mm. With multiple layers of prophecy, prophecy, typical prophecy, you know, lived out in space and time happening because Joseph went down to Egypt. So you're like, wow. So we cannot know the full complex of reasons why any suffering happens in our lives, but but they are multifaceted. We just need to trust God and all that, and we need to not excuse God out of our depression, saying God has nothing to do with this. Mm. So that helps us, I think, if we can right now, just to zero in a little more carefully on how we do yeah. perceive God when we're depressed. Uh, how does <clears throat> depression tend to make us, I think you mentioned the, the phrase, practical atheists. How yeah. does that happen? Yeah, uh, Edward Welsh cites one French counselor. I don't know if this guy, the psychiatrist, was a believer or not, but he said this. Depressed people are sullen, radical atheists. Hmm. Um, so you're like, well, you know, you're kind of hurting me now. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling sad, and now I'm coming and finding out I'm a sullen, radical atheist. Well, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's those words directly describe you but what does happen with depression is we go down and down and down into that dark staircase mm -hmm. god becomes further and further distant from us and we start thinking he may be alive he may exist he may be creative and powerful but none of that seems to be helping me at all mm -hmm. right now well first of all the language is bad <laughs> he may be mm -hmm alive and exist it's like what well, well, maybe or is which so already that's the language of practical atheism or agnosticism mm -hmm. so it's like no no you need to start saying what you do believe god exists god created all things god is good god is loving when you start saying those things you're already on your way back up and out but yeah i think there's that sense of distance like abner judson digging his own grave and sitting by it god is to me the great unknown i seek him but i do not find that seems like atheism. I mean, in terms of his trial, the loss of his wife and his child and the, and the failure of his, apparently up to that point of his mission, it's like, I don't know who God is. That sounds like somebody who doesn't believe in God. So there's that, that sense um, that God is distant from me. God doesn't answer my prayer. And, you know, uh, there, there needs to be. Someone once said that depression is, is as anger uh, turned inward. Um, let's say the death of a loved one. Loved one's buried, gone, it's a year later, and you're deeply depressed. You're really angry that the loved one's gone, but who can you be angry at? Yeah. So you turn it inward, and you kind of know who you could be angry at. You could be angry at God. 
the angry at God. And so to admit that in the midst of depression, frankly, I'm angry at God. I'm angry at what's happened in my life. I'm angry at my singleness, the fact that we aren't able to have children, or I'm angry at the loss of my spouse. Or I'm angry at the fact that I've been unemployed now for 18 months. God could solve all of any of these problems anytime, move his little finger, but he's choosing not to. So I, I don't know how I feel about God right now. There's an anger at God. Now I'll say this about anger at God. A number of years ago, I was counseling a young woman who was very, very upset because uh, someone that she had fallen in love with was an undocumented or illegal alien. Uh, had come into the country illegally and, and had been legally deported. So he's back into uh, Latin America and she probably would never see him again. And so she had a strong anger toward God. She told me that. She said, I guess I'm just angry at God. I remember at that time saying, you know, I, I spoke compassionate words. I said, it must be very difficult. And I gave her, you know, but none of us moving the needle. She wasn't impressed. She was just angry at God. And then I came up with this analogy. I said, let's think about God like we think about the sun. All right. It's 93 million miles away. It's a raging inferno of heat and light. Uh, it does nuclear reactions on its surface every, every split second. It is a powerful thing. It's lighting the whole earth and warming the whole earth, and it's 93 million miles away. Let's say all the entire human race, all seven billion of us, decided we all were angry at the sun for causing skin cancer or something like that, and we decided we're gonna get back at the sun. We're gonna, we're gonna get it. So we make the biggest nuclear rocket that we can make. It's the most powerful weapon we've ever made, and we hurl it at the sun. What do you think's gonna happen? She's like, it's not even going to make it. <laughs> yeah, she didn't know it, but four million miles away, it burns up. And by the way, if the, if, if it permits, it's like, come on, it's what I do for a living. Nuclear bomb, that's what I do. So here's, here's the point. We can't do anything to God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is who he is. He is a happy, powerful, in charge being. The only reason he ever feels anything negative or sad or anything is because he's compassionate for you. So you should realize your anger at God only hurts you, but God is ready to help you if you will have his help. That really did melt her at that point. She realized, I can't be angry at God. What point is that? But God wants to help me. So anyway. And God has shown that, you know, that throughout scripture we see this. And I think that the idea of the incarnation, right? Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the man of sorrows. Uh, how does that help us understand Isaiah 43 as it applies oh, to depression? In every way, Jesus is the answer. Jesus mm. is our Savior. Mm. Jesus is, is God come close. You know, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He pitched his tent with us. Tabernacled, that's the Greek. He, he pitched his tent right in and among us right there with us that's the incarnation he became flesh for us the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him emmanuel which means god with us god with us hebrews 13 5 god has said never will i leave you never will i forsake you well he does that by jesus and jesus does it by the spirit he says and surely i'm with you always even at the end of the age he's right there with us and jesus knows suffering isaiah 53 it says he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows a man of sorrows we could say a man of depression <clears throat> a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows he carried our depression our anxieties and fears. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. 
I think no one has ever been as depressed as Jesus. I must imagine that when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a depth of feeling that is, I think, exactly like depression, exactly like the dark abandonment. That was his lowest point there on the cross in infinite measure. And he knew in Gethsemane that's where he was heading. So he even was feeling it there, too. So to think Jesus never was depressed or can ever feel depression, again, is to do what we said earlier in this, is say to exclude him from that. Depression's different. Jesus is with us all other times, but he's not with us in this. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, wait a minute, there's someone in there. (laughs) He looks like one like a son of the gods, brighter than the fire. That's Jesus walking with them through the fire. Uh, and again, Isaiah, uh, sorry, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tested or tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So let's say depression's a time of need. We go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know exactly what it feels like to feel these dark feelings, but you never sinned. Show me how to be in this trial and not sin. Draw me out of it. So just drawing close to Jesus. How can we learn to see God as being very intentional in our depression? That like all other trials, he has a distinct purpose. Yeah, I think that's what we were talking about earlier. But we need to know that in everything, God works for the good of those who love and who have been called according to his purpose. And his purpose is our final glorification. So we have to believe this depression, the circumstances that bring about this depression and all that, have been engineered by a wise, loving God for a purpose. It's not willy-nilly. It's not random. It's just, you know, God working. And then later in that same chapter, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? When Spurgeon was writhing on the ground in agony and he cried out, God actually answered his prayer and took the pain away. Miraculously right there and then. He didn't feel it again the rest of the day or for some time afterwards. And then what did that teach him? It's like God is a my loving father and he heard that prayer. And his level of, you know, like, well, why would he ever bring it back yet? Well, you have more to teach him. But, but it's a, he's in a different place now. It's like, I know you did it that one time. You can do it again if you choose. So it's powerful. There is an intentionality in what God is doing. Mm. You know, the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, command us to cry out to the Lord in our depression. How can that be particularly hard when we're depressed? Well, I think Satan has put some of a, of a wall between us and God. He's lied to us. And we're lying to ourselves that God isn't here. God doesn't care. God, you know, I, this is my own thing. I brought this on myself. And, you know, I've been I've been hopeless and unbelieving and saying hard things about God. And so I'm on my own. Mm. That's a lie. And so we need in the midst of out of the depths, like the psalmist says, cry out to the Lord. And we need to just begin uh, just I think the discipline of praying in the midst of that circumstance uh, to, to bring our depression to him in prayer and cry out against it and in it. That's important. Can be the hardest thing to do in those moments, but also the most necessary or needful and helpful and beneficial. We could argue to some degree that that was the whole purpose Mm. that we would bring our weakness and emptiness and brokenness to God in prayer, that we're too independent. Any chance 
we're too independent. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Any chance we don't pray enough. Yes. <laughs> so, so to cry out and the psalmists give us so many. How many psalms are there? You've I know you've studied the psalms of lament, mm -hmm. but I would guess a good percentage of those seem very relevant in terms of depression. Absolutely. You know, so Psalm 5, 1 through 3, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. That's how you should pray in depression. You're just like, I am depressed. I am not moving until you make me happy in Jesus. I'm just going to be here. Or again, Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? So many other Psalms. I already quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So how does this crying out to the Lord cure us of what you mentioned, I think almost at the beginning, this idea of turning in or bending inward, mm -hmm. like depression often makes us do. Yeah, that phrase comes from Edward Welsh. Uh, you know, makes you inward focus. Um, everything you hear, you hear hear a happy story with a good outcome. It's like, and, uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. I mean, it's just everything comes back to me. It's a boomerang all the right, time. Right. And it's like, all right, crying out to the Lord caused you to, to kind of straighten that boomerang. And and you're going, you're going up to God. You're saying, God, I need you. So all of my inward thoughts, I now need to bend upward toward God. As a practical application, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the Psalms of Lament, which are incredibly helpful for us. Even yeah. Psalm 13, probably one of the most well-known and probably one that we can resonate with most in our times of depression. But how can we try walking through the entire Psalms yeah. in our prayers when we're depressed? Yeah, I mean, uh, Edward Welsh commends Psalm 22, mm -hmm. uh, which I think has a main kind of two-part outline. Uh, as Peter gives us in 1 Peter, the prophet spoke about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow the subsequent glories. That's a great two-part outline to Psalm 22. So the intense sufferings of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the th good thing about Psalm 22 in your depression is that Jesus felt it, but he went to the cross. You didn't. And so his hands and feet were pierced. Um, you know, he he's, he's poured out like water. His, there's physical stuff going on for him. And then he turns and declares God's praise in the congregation, in the assembly. And those who go down to the dust, who couldn't save themselves and keep themselves alive, will praise you forever. There's this eternal celebration. If you're not happy by the end of Psalm 22, go through it again. All right, because it's so delightful. It starts out so dark. Mm. And then Jesus is the one drinking in that darkness, goes to the cross and then rises from the grave. And resurrection is preached to the ends of the earth and people are saved. And that's our hope. Would you pray for us, Andy? Lord, thank you for the study we've had on, on just meeting depression, anxiety, and fear with the gospel. And we ended there. And Psalm 22 is the gospel. Christ died and he rose again in order that we might have eternal joy, eternal life. So I pray for my brothers and sisters that are going through depression, that they'd hear these words and be equipped to fight and to follow God, to follow Christ up out of the pit into the sunshine of his promises and his love for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.